you're a police officer or currently working in law enforcement and you're considering your career, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Andy Lobron. Welcome to the Blue Light Leavers podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Blue Light Leavers podcast. And this is a big one. Uh, so today I'm talking to uh, Professor Sarah Charman, who is a professor of uh, criminology and uh, Dr. Gemma Tyson, who is a senior lecturer in criminology, both at the University of Portsmouth. And they conducted a study entitled Voluntary Resignations from the Police Service, the Impact of Organisational Stresses and Organisational Commitments. And that's looking at the reasons and rationale behind the exponential increase in voluntary resignations of police officers. And what it's shown is that there's been a 72% increase within uh, 12 months and also a 200% increase within 10 years. Uh, so it's having a massive impact. And we talk about exactly this. We talk about the research that was conducted and how they went about doing it. We talk about the findings and the impact of uh, this exponential growth in uh, voluntary resignations. And we look at what's been done from a national uh, and organizational perspective and also by the Federation. We talk about the importance of intervention and what can be done to reverse this. And uh, we also talk about next steps. So it's an incredibly uh, insightful and interesting interview. And uh, I'm really grateful to them both for the time. It was brilliant to meet them both again. And uh, Sarah was actually a guest speaker at the Out of the Blue uh, Expo that we did uh, back in April 2023. So uh, uh, so it's great to see her again. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. Let's go over to them now. Just before we head over to the interview, I just want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by the brilliant Motorsource Group, who, like Blue Light Leavers, are very proud sponsors of the Emergency Services Football League. Now, I've met CEO Steve Thornton a number of times now, and I've also interviewed him for the podcast. And I've also met the team, and I've been up to their head office. And they're just a really lovely bunch of people who are genuinely doing the right thing and doing their bit to say thanks. Now, Motorsource Group offer genuine new car discounts to serving and retired emergency services personnel including police, NHS, fire and rescue, and prison service. They're completely independent, offering a full range of makes and models, and are rated excellent by their customers on Trustpilot. They also work closely with the Police Federation and with NARPO, and they deliver direct to your door. I promise you, you will make savings. Now, to find out more, go to bluelightleavers.com forward slash partners. That's bluelightleavers.com forward slash partners. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Gemma. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for um, for agreeing to be interviewed on the Blue Light Leavers podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, Sarah, obviously, been in contact for a while now, and, uh, and you very kindly spoke at the Out of the Blue event um, that we held up in Birmingham uh, back in April. So it's great to see you again. Thank you. Great to be here. And Gemma, it's great to meet you. And you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, it'd be really helpful, I think, for, for people listening to this to understand uh, who you are and what it is that you're currently doing. Okay, uh, I'll kick off. My name is Sarah Charman. I'm a professor of criminology at the University of Portsmouth at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice, where I've been teaching and researching policing and criminology for almost three decades now. Um, And this particular project on police leavers has been in the making for the last four or five years. Great stuff. Thanks, Sarah. And Jen? Um, And I'm Gemma Tyson. I work at the same school um, and university as Sarah. I'm a senior lecturer in um, criminology. I've been working with Sarah um, on this project for the last few years. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And um, the reason we we originally spoke was, um, uh, I think it was an article on LinkedIn originally that um, that was was sort of highlighted to me, and uh, it was to do with voluntary resignations from the police service. And I think the paper's entitled exactly that, and then the impact of organisational occupational stresses on organisational commitment. And it'd be 
it'd be really helpful because the the context that you gave uh, at the event in April was was absolutely stunning and it really impacted people. So it'd be really good to understand more about why that study, uh, why the study took place and then how you went about doing it. It'd be, it'd be really helpful. Perfect. Thank you, Andy. I'll, I'll maybe highlight that context and then Gemma can talk about the research that we've done. Yeah, I suppose the, the beginnings of this research happened a, a long time before we actually began it. And it was a project that I was doing about 10 years ago with new recruits to the police service. And I interviewed them over four occasions over the first four years of their career. And what surprised me quite early on with this research was that these new recruits were saying to me, well, I'm doing this job for now, but it's certainly not a job for life. And that really surprised me because I was expecting them to say that this is something I've wanted to do forever and I'm going to be carrying on doing it forever. So I thought, I wonder why officers are thinking about leaving at this very early stages. So I took to the library, started looking through journal articles, research articles, and could find really nothing about why officers were leaving. And I suppose what you'd call avoidable turnover. Why were they leaving early? What were the problems? What were the issues? Was it because they wanted to do something different and just wanted a short-term career in the police? Or was it because there was some problem within policing that was going on there? So I thought, well, I need to go and find out. There's no research out there. I'll go and find out myself. So uh, Gemma and I got together and decided we would start a project looking at why officers were leaving early. And I'll pass over to her to explain what we did. Uh, Thanks, Sarah. Um, So we've done uh, two projects. If I talk about um, both of those, the first one that we did was with uh, just a single force um, and that involved a small group of interviews with those that had uh, voluntarily resigned um, over a four year period. Um, and then once we'd completed that piece of research, we then did a national project um, that involved officers from uh, 30 of the police forces in England and Wales. Um, and uh, again, new semi-structured interviews um, for that project. Um, those officers had left in a much shorter time uh, time frame. It was about 18 months that they'd that they'd left. So. With both of those projects, uh, we've interviewed just shy of 100 um, officers that have voluntarily resigned. Um, and we've had over five and a half thousand minutes of interview data, um, So, which is great for, for us, being, being able to hear you know, the voices of those officers um, that, have, that have left. Um, quite lengthy. Um, I think Sarah probably agree, quite emotional interviews mm-hmm. um, quite often. Um, and uh, the officers were saying you know, that our research interviews quite, felt quite cathartic because they hadn't been able to have their voices heard and to uh, you know, get off their chest everything that they'd been feeling. Um, so, uh, yeah, with our participants, um, I said just shy of 100 between the two research projects um, and also ranging from PC up to, I think, the highest rank was chief superintendent. Um, so it's quite a nice spread uh, with the uh, participants that have been involved as well. Um, and also in relation to years of service, um, that ranged from a, less than a year to um, 28 years, I think, was the highest. Um, so we've covered yeah, quite, a, quite a range and different types of officers that have been involved in uh in that research mm-hmm. yeah that's huge and what were the key findings obviously we know it'd be, it'd be really good for people who maybe aren't aware to understand uh the increase in voluntary resignations as well and what you found and and then if we can then dive into the reasons for that that'd be really helpful yeah and you're right the increase has been absolutely huge and there's been so much uh press media mm-hmm. attention 
Uh, finally, I think the policing organisation itself is coming to grips with the fact that these numbers are rising exponentially at the moment in terms of the number of leavers of the uh, uh, voluntarily uh, leaving from the police service. I suppose our, our, one of the first questions we asked in the interviews was, you know, why, why did you leave the organisation? Why did you leave policing? And once we'd got all of those minutes of data, as Gemma was just pointing out, we analysed all of that to try and understand what the themes that were emerging from that research were. And what we noticed that all of those reasons why officers were leaving the police service fell under an umbrella of what we've called organisational injustice. So a sense of organisational injustice was coming across. And that came across strongly in four particular ways. It came across from uh, ex-officers in terms of a feeling of a lack of voice, in terms of not being recognised, not feeling a part of the decision-making process about themselves and others. They felt it. the second reason was around uh, a lack of promotion and progression opportunities that uh, tendency to be, um, I suppose, rewarding ambition rather than ability. There was a frustration around that. The third reason why officers were leaving was around a sense of poor leadership within the organisation, both in terms of not feeling trusted by their leaders, but also not feeling supported. And the fourth reason um, that we came across in our research was around that sense of inflexibility within the organisation in meeting their needs, either in meeting their needs in terms of disability or maternity, paternity leave, for example, meeting their needs in terms of transitioning to part-time work as well, or in in managing their home and work commitments. So those would be the four major reasons we found why officers were voluntarily leaving the organisation. So as a result of that, what do we think the impact is both from an organisational perspective and I guess from from a victim perspective as well, what did, what did you find as a result of, or what do you what have you, you know, what conclusions have you come to regarding the number of people that are leaving that voluntary and that I guess that period of service is really really important, isn't it? Because you know whether it's from one year to twenty eight years, there is a there is such a huge amount of knowledge and expertise within that time frame. So, what do you think? Um, you know, the knock on effect of that is. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about two particular impacts, and then maybe Jacob, uh, Gemma can uh, can highlight some more as well. But but I suppose that the, the major impacts is an impact on the organisation in that loss of exper- huge loss of experience, um, particularly amongst those officers who are the kind of eight to twelve year mark who are incredibly valuable to the organisation. So that organisational knowledge is being lost. But then there's a huge impact on the individual as well. Many of the um, ex-officers that we spoke to had held a long-held desire to be a police officer. And so there's a real sense of disappointment. And for some of them, it was a sense of failure that they couldn't make it work. But on the other hand, amongst that that, um, cohort of officers, ex-officers that we spoke to, there was also a feeling of relief, of relief that they were out of that situation that they'd found themselves in, that the enormous stresses and strains that they'd had as trying to make themselves to be part of the policing family that they'd not been able to do. So although there was disappointment and there was regret at some level, there was also a relief that they were out of the organisation. Mm-hmm. And I think also one of the key things that came out from our research um, was that people weren't having exit interviews. They weren't being given the opportunity to feed back those reasons to the organisations as to why they were going. Um, and the few, the minority that did, they weren't meaningful. Um, you know, a lot of the common um, uh, phrase that we heard was that it was just a tick box exercise. So that feedback loop is also not being closed, which you know, therefore means that organisations aren't being able to deal with retention and try to you know, decrease the numbers of voluntary um, of voluntary resignations, which I think mm. is you know, significant. And 
I guess on top of that, some of our, um, what well, another area of our research talked about the process of leaving. So we've got reasons for why people will go in, but also their experiences of leaving. So on top of not having those exit interviews, a common um, response with our participants when they put their resignation letters in was that the reaction they were getting from the organisation, from their colleagues and from their line managers was that, oh, I would do the same if I was you. So it was that positive encouragement to go rather than conversations as to, okay, what can we do to try to prevent you from going and what can we do, what can we change? Um, which then means, as Sarah said, you don't lose that core knowledge and experience of those of those officers. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I remember uh, seeing uh, as part of your research that, you know, even senior officers were feeding that back as well. It wasn't just sort of lower ranks and, and peers. It was actually senior officers saying, I don't blame me as well, which is, which is staggering really. And particularly if they're missing that intervention piece around, you know, what can I, what can we do to, to change your mind or is, you know, or getting in even earlier. And we'll talk about that intervention in a moment, but it's really interesting you talk about the exit interviews and that data as well, because I know some research has been done more recently by the College of Policing. And um, and one of the massive parts of that was actually that we keep no records. We've got no idea why people are leaving. And you just think that's absolutely staggering. I know there's some, you know, some stuff that's being done to try and remedy that. But um, I think, so, Andy, just in relation to yeah, that, of course, yeah. the College of Policing are doing really good work on that. You know, they're, <laughs> There is now good good practice guidance on exit interviews. Um, the National Leavers Framework is looking at the whole that, issue yeah. of exit interviews. What I think concerns us, though, still in all of this, is the tendency of the police service, as we all know, to sort of spreadsheet the life out of things. Mm-hmm. Is that yes, you can you can record the interview, the exit interview has taken place. You can tick the boxes of which things people have agreed to in terms of why they've left. But if there's no analysis. Of this data, if there's no sort of sharing of this data, if there's no uh, understanding of the the broader reasons why people are leaving, and then dealing with those reasons, then nothing will improve. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a matter of doing the exit interview; it's then what you do with that data from the exit interview that the police really need to focus on. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that has to be done at a national level as well, and and sharing it, you know, sharing it with experts like yourselves who've done the research already and actually you know, use your knowledge and experience and expertise and others as well. And, um, you know, that is so, so important. Um, I think um, if we can talk about maybe what is being done at a national level uh, in a bit more detail and then maybe look at some of the um, what's what's happening within force. So I am aware of anecdotally some some things that are taking place um, like intervention interviews. You know, if you're if you're considering leaving, then, you know, click here and tell us why and and you'll be spoken to by someone but um but we'll go into that in a, in a second but um so what is being done then from a obviously we've got the the um national leavers framework as you say but what else is being done to to really make sure that this is being dealt with correctly well i think the uh, the uplift program have had a big focus on uh retention as part of their job in recruitment because there was a very quick understanding that in, in order to recruit the 20,000, they needed to actually recruit a whole bunch more because of the retention crisis. So there was work being done by the Uplift Programme. The Uplift Programme is now coming to an end. And I suppose what we need to be really clear about is that that work is passed on elsewhere. And also that the focus is not just on new recruits who might be considering leaving or leaving, but actually leavers across the board. 
Mm. Um, I think there's a tendency to presume it's a generational issue or or because um, people are seeking work elsewhere. But actually, from our research, people aren't leaving because they want a job elsewhere. They're leaving because of problems within the police service itself. So the, the, the good work that's gone on with the Police Uplift Programme, I think, needs to be expanded and broadened across the police service. So, yes, you've got the NPCC National Leavers Framework. But I think where the police service needs to really concentrate is on those pockets of good practice across the country. I know there's good work going on in Dorset. Um, there's good work particularly going on in Greater Manchester Police around their STAY initiative. Um, and that they're actually, I think, in many of these forces, they're using the financial savings of uh, a lower level of retention to convince others in the police service that this is the way forward. So, you know, if you can't convince your senior officers that you need to retain good staff, well, convince them by the pound signs because police service will save an enormous amount of money if it tackles this crisis head on. So some of these stay initiatives that are going on, particularly in forces like Greater Manchester, I think are really, really impressive. It's about having conversations with people before they get to the stage where they want to hand their resignation in. And that's absolutely vital. We know from academic research that it's at those first signs of trouble that actually interventions can be more successful. If you leave it much further down the line, then the decision's been made and it's very difficult to bring people back. So trying to encourage people, trying to work a way round what can be done to improve the situation is really important. In fact, one of the things that Gemma and I have been looking at recently, and perhaps I'll pass over to Gemma to talk about this, is the inflexibility of the organisation at the moment. And so if, if service can tackle some of those issues, then I think there will be some improvements. Gemma, I don't know if you want to uh, elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so within the organisational flexibility or inflexibility, we found there were three areas where um, our, the officers that we spoke to felt that the organisation was perceived to be not very flexible at all. So that was in relation to uh, officers who have got additional needs, long term or short term health issues or disabilities. Um, those officers that have also got work commitments, primarily parental responsibilities and childcare, um, and also in relation to the transition to part-time working, within those three areas, um, that's where you know, there were real negative stories and experiences that were shared um, were shared with us. And I think particularly when we look at the flexible working and kind of all that that encompasses, whether that's flexibility in terms of the time, the kind of the place, the space that you're working. Um, what tends to happen with flexible working, there seemed to be a lack of knowledge, as our participants were saying, around actually what that means um, and a lack of evidence of that being put in practice. So whilst organisations will say that that is technically possible to do a flexible working role, what that means in practice is that people are doing no different to what they were doing in the full-time role. Mm -hmm. um, and we found that that had a disproportionate impact on women in particular, um, so I think kind of thinking about interventions and moving forwards, that flexible working being less reactive and something that organisations respond to and is something that's more proactive. So advertising posts and roles that you align with that flexible working approach from the get go, rather than being something that they, they change later on. Um, and also having those types of roles undertaken by men and women, because I think that then helps to deal with the gender difference that we were seeing within our within our research. And that then becomes more normal um, and something that people are used to seeing. Whereas I think that was some of the challenge and the frustration that our participants were saying to us is that, you know, there weren't very many that were 
involved in flexible working arrangements or perhaps have atypical roles because of being an adjusted or restricted officer um and that being quite alien um and organizations you know viewing them as being a different kettle of fish not being part of the norm um so yeah i think that's a really really significant point yeah absolutely i think it's also a bit of stigma attached to to that as well in terms of, of particularly you know mums or or dads going back after maternity paternity leave that type of thing as well and um and you know working flexible hours or um you know compressed hours part-time working as well there is a bit of stigma attached to that as well and, and that you know can cause challenges in terms of how you feel about the organization and your peers and everything else as well without a shadow of a doubt and so with the research that you that you did did you find that there was a disproportionate number of of female officers leaving at a particular length of service or, or you know demographic at all well because this was interview research we, we've only got the, the sample that we spoke to so we haven't done any statistical analysis of the uh, of the leavers rate but mm. we do know from home office research for example that there are a disproportionate number of women who are leaving the service mm. and a disproportionate number of black asian minority ethnic people who are leaving the service so mm. those two things really need to be addressed and i think particularly for the uh, around the issue of women it's as Gemma was saying around that whole getting rid of that flexibility stigma um, the sort of cultural association that you have, you know this only too well, Andy, with overwork and extreme work and presence and visibility, mm. you know, that, that overwork and extreme work is somehow associated with success and the potential for promotion. Um, I think there was there was an interesting, interesting data that came out only this morning that, that at, in countries all over the world, the UK are the least likely country to say that actually overwork is, is is what they want to do and that they want that work-life balance and I think the police service has got have got to really consider this tying in of extreme work and visibility with success because that's to the detriment of the organization and to the detriment of the well-being of police officers as well. Mm, yeah without a doubt that's actually spot on and do you know if there's um, any work that's being undertaken by the federation at all and um um, you know, obviously we've got work that's going on from from the um, quality of policing side of things, but but what about from a from a Fed perspective? I know that the Fed are writing about this at the moment. They've got a couple of pieces out um, at the moment on the levers rate. Um, they were in collaboration with us at the beginning of this project in terms of us allowing us access to some people who were leaving the police service um, in order to interview them. But other than that, uh, it's, I'm not aware that they're doing any particular work in this area. But I, I'm quite sure that's not the case that they're not doing it. It's just that perhaps I'm not aware of it at the moment. Mm, no, that's okay. That's fair enough. Um, so what do you think can be done to help reverse this? Obviously, we've spoken about, you know, flexible working and, uh, and you know, the, the mix there, the gender mix and everything else as well to to make it more normal, if you like. And, um, and But what else can be done to help reverse this trend? We've, uh, in terms of the analysis of our findings, we've written a report on this, which uh, we're very ha- happy to share with anyone who's interested in it. And as part of that, we have got a series of recommendations as to what we think needs to be focused on the police. Uh, I'll maybe take a few and then see, Gemma, if you want to add a, add a few more. I think in particular, it's around treating people as people. Mm. I think it's about trying to focus much more on a people a people approach to the organisation rather than a systems approach to the organisation. A lot of the officers who were leaving said they, they didn't feel like an individual, they felt like a number. They felt mm. that they weren't recognised and their work wasn't recognised. And I know that the operational demands of policing are very extreme, and I know that supervisory experience is also quite limited. But I think that focus on people as individuals has got to come through. The private sector organisations and other public sector organisations are doing this very well, and they will take police officers and they will treat them as a person, and and more and more officers will 
will continue to leave. So that focus on the individual is really important. Maybe I'll just tackle one more thing, and that's around the issue of promotion and progression. There is a real problem with the issue of temporary promotion in the police service. It doesn't suit anybody. It doesn't suit the people that get the temporary promotion and then don't get the substantive posts. And it doesn't suit the people for whatever reason, their face doesn't fit and they don't get the tap on the shoulder to get the temporary promotion. It's unfair and it doesn't work. So I think that needs to be considered in terms of a much better and much more supportive system of promotion and progression for officers. Because the police service can't just rely on the fact that people have wanted to be police officers forever. They'll join the police service and that's it. They're happy. They've got to commit to the people within their organisation. They've got to commit to their long term development and growth in a way that I think they've been a little bit complacent about in the past. I think two of the other, um, we list nine recommendations in the uh, in the report, and I think two of the other specific ones is around those exit interviews and making sure that they're well documented, um, but they're also meaningful. So they're being done with people that, you know, the interviewee is happy to be interviewed by the person that's doing that interview. So we had some examples within our research that there were issues between our participants and their line managers or supervisors and it was then those individuals that were doing the exit interview which then meant they didn't feel that they could say exactly what they what they felt so thinking about who's doing those interviews um when they're taking place making sure that they are meaningful um and i think just more broadly that kind of fairness and transparency in decision making is really significant so sarah's already mentioned around you know promotion progression um but other you know, changes with people are being changed from station or there's a, you know, a reorganisation as to how a particular force is working to make sure that then officers are involved from the get go and feel that they have that voice, feel that they have that contribution to those decisions rather than being involved at a later stage when the decision's already made. Mm. Um, and quite often our, the people we spoke to said that they didn't feel that they could give that alternatives perspective they had to go with that kind of group thinking mentality and if you say something different then you become even more alienated than perhaps what you were doing what you were doing before so yeah those you know perhaps more day-to-day lower level decision making communication um is really significant mm, no, and everything you've spoken about is i i absolutely can vouch for it you know i've been helping people since sort of 2018 move on and and everything you're saying resonates so strongly it really does it's uh, the the other thing I think would be would be really helpful is if those intervention pieces. So you, t- you spoke about Dorset and GMP doing particularly good work, um, and again it's only anecdotally and it's only one example, but it was it was where an officer had submitted a, a document to say they're considering leaving, and um, a chief inspector then pinged them with no notice through teams, and so the officer took the call and. Um, it was in front of the whole team and, and the chief inspector said, oh, I, you know, you've submitted a form saying that you're considering leaving. And, you know, this officer hadn't mentioned it to the team or to, you know, any other colleagues. And so it's, you know, it's those little things that can make such a massive, and that officer then went on to leave. You know, it just oh. felt that exactly as you said earlier, it's that, you know, it's um, it's just a tick box rather than actually done with meaning. And so, so I think if you are going to do intervention, it has to be really mindful. You've got to be so switched on, do it properly for all the right reasons. Um, because otherwise it's just completely pointless and it's just going to drive people, you know, to, to leave uh, if it isn't done correctly. So intervention is hugely important. 
And I think that story that you just told there, Andy, really resonates with us in terms of the, of the research that we've been doing. We've heard that, you know, something similar to that time and time again. Mm. And, you know, it sounds to me like that was being done to try and undermine that officer and the, and the, and the conversation that, that they perhaps wanted to have with their, with their line manager. And we're hearing that all of the time because, you know, culturally within the policing organisation, it requires 100% loyalty or, or 110% loyalty, if you like. And if you don't provide that, then you're letting the side down. And, you know, the amount of times that officers, and you'll have heard this before, were told, well, if you don't like it, you can go and work in, you know, a supermarket and they'll just name one. Because unless you're 100% committed, then then they, they don't feel committed to you. But what, what we would argue is that the police service needs to show that commitment back. You know, you've got officers who are putting their lives on the line. You've got officers who are sacrificing an awful amount. So they also need the support and commitment from the organisation back to them, that reciprocal commitment in order to make that relationship work. Yeah, completely. Absolutely. I think if there's, you know, if there is that pride in the organisation, the pride in the role as well, then you're less likely to to have issues with misconduct as well and poor behaviour. And and I know you've, you've done some research around this as well, and it's... You know, it's just a knock-on effect, isn't it? You know, it's it's literally from top down and bottom up. You've you've just got to get this right, and um, um, incredibly helpful. So, in terms of the research and 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 you know, next steps for you, what do you see as as being the next steps for you? We would like to transform this now into a, an even bigger project if we can, and we're, and we're on the lookout for some funding in order to be able to do that. And we want to build a bit, a bit more of a team around Gemma and myself um, to try and enact this project. But what we really want to look at is, is almost a beginning to end, look at the careers of the police officers from beginnings to ends, looking at where those crunch points are, those pinch points are, looking at where the difficulties are for officers in trying to integrate themselves within the organisation, and particularly focusing on that issue of retention. But we also want to focus specifically, I think, on the on the particular problems that are faced by women within the police service and also, as I mentioned, black, Asian, minority, ethnic officers within the service and the impact of culture and some of the negative aspects and characteristics of culture on those two particular groups in terms of their much higher attrition rates. So that's where we want to take the, the project in the future. And we're hoping to secure some support um, from the various police associations um, in order to try and get some external funding to do that research. Yeah, I think that would really, really help without a doubt. Um, but incredibly um, interesting and, and just amazing research. And, and I'm so grateful to you for your time and, and for, you know, to be able to explain it in, in a bit more detail. And, um, and and like I said, everything that you've mentioned is is just resonates so strongly. So, so thank you so much for that. It's, uh, it's great to have you on here. Thank you. If people want to connect with you and um, um, or, or get involved in any of the research that you're doing, what's the best way of doing that? Oh, please do contact us. We hear from a lot of officers, those who are thinking of leaving and those who have already left. So we're really happy to hear from anyone uh, who wants to talk to us. We uh, our, our email details are on the University of Portsmouth website. Alternatively, we're both on Twitter or X and we're also both on LinkedIn. So please do connect with us. Great stuff. And we'll put contact details in the show notes as well. So again, thanks so much for your time. Brilliant interview and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Incredibly grateful to Sarah and Gemma for their time and uh, and their insight into uh, into the study and uh, and the impact. Uh, it's just so, so important and it's so, so important that we get this intervention correct and, uh, and retention is such a key part. So if you like what you heard, then don't forget to leave a review and you can do that on Apple and Spotify and uh, you can join us in a private Facebook group, uh, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash blue light levers. And um, there's loads of free information uh, on the uh, resources page of the website and within the Facebook group as well. 
and um, yeah, just leave a review, let us know what you think. And if you uh, like what you've heard, then share it with friends as well, because it just really helps to get the message out there. And, and as always, just a massive thanks to you for listening, because um, that's the reason why I do it. It's knowing that, uh, that it's helping and some of the feedback that I get from people I've never met who've gone on to do some amazing things as a result of listening to the podcast is just so rewarding. So thank you for that. Um, right, that's it for now. Look forward to speaking to you again soon and uh, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks' time. Take care. Bye for now.